Dispatch. Pockets of fire all around. Dear Chief, much has happened since we last spoke. Welcome to Dear Chief Podcast, where your hosts and their guests share the 411 of being married to the people who respond to 911s. Take a peek into fire family life and get unabashed advice on how to prevent forest fires in your marriage. Now, here's your host, two seasoned firewives, Audra and Chelsea. Okay, welcome back. Today we're chatting with Dr. Richard Jenka of 911 Training Institute about how first responders can be the best version of themselves at home. We'll also get a peek into what first responders experience at work to give families a better understanding of what their people go through from day to day. Dr. Richard, Richard Jenka is a resilience and calm mastery instructor specializing in the design and delivery of resilience and peer support training for 911 professionals and other emergency responders. Dr. Janka attended the University of Detroit Mercy for his undergraduate studies. There he received a double major in sociology and religious studies. He later went on to earn his master's in counseling psychology from Moody Theological Seminary. He received his doctorate in clinical psychology from the Michigan School of Psychology in 2012. Dr. Janka has worked with individuals ranging from age 15 to late adulthood, as well as couples. He has experience working with anxiety, depression, ADHD, sexual issues, including addiction and sexual disorders, PTSD, and premarital counseling. He also has experience working with police, fire, and other first responders. Dr. Jenka has received specialized training in the following areas, hostage and crisis negotiation, law enforcement stress, line of duty death, and critical incident stress management. He is a member of the American Psychological Association and the Michigan Psychological Association, as well as a member of the International Association of Chiefs or Police, Chiefs of Police and the Fire Service Psychology Association. That's not wow. a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. J. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. So we're going to dive in. So tell us more about you and your work with 911 Training Institute. Yeah, so uh, I've been working with first responders and pretty much since I've been licensed for the last 15 years. I started with a, with a master's degree and did a lot of clinical work uh, with first responders. Uh, and, you know, when I say first responders, I'm, I'm referring to EMT uh, and we're police officers, firefighters, uh, 911 um, individuals as well. So, and actually uh, quite a few ER nurses that I've been working with too. They're, you know, pretty close to first responders themselves. So anyway, I, I started working with, with those folks uh, from a clinical perspective. I did some work with the sheriff's office. I was a reserve deputy for a while. Then I worked uh, in the county jail and the mental health unit for about two years. And then I worked for uh, the Michigan State Police for about five years, taught at the academy, worked with the hostage crisis negotiation team. And uh, one of my projects was also working with our statewide call centers, uh, just traveling around the state, working with with, with those individuals, helping them uh, talk about resilience and uh, just managing the stress of the job. left MSP and been 
basically doing that same thing just on my own lately. Started working with the gym at 911 Training Institute, specifically focusing on uh, 911 and doing work with other first responders um, on my own. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so what what made you get into this field of, of work? Well, uh, I guess it started when I was working on my dissertation for uh, for my doctoral degree. And uh, I wanted to, to study the effects of critical incidents on individuals. And not necessarily did it generate PTSD, but what symptoms of PTSD, like what stress symptoms did those critical incidents produce? And um, my, uh, my uh, uh, preliminary study was with firefighters and the actual dissertation was with police officers. And I studied the effects of exposure to death on stress rates, stress symptoms. Uh, could have been a suicide, could have been uh, a line of duty death, could have been uh, tragic accidents um, or uh, homicide. And uh, just to determine which, which incidents caused the most stress. So that really got me networked and plugged in with first responders. Uh, I, did, I did some consulting work with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman with some local police psychologists, uh, did a little consultation with uh, Jim Marshall in Michigan as well. And that's kind of what got the ball rolling. I saw there was a a need and I, turns out I was a good fit to help fill that need. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So I think everybody knows um, Chelsea's husband, Cameron, actually works in dispatch. Um, he's in the comm center for Cal Fire. So we get to hear kind of Chelsea's perspective on it. Um, so we want to hear kind of the perspective of first responders or from you. Um, we're most curious today about what 911 dispatchers go through on the job. So if you want to talk to us about that a little bit. 911 dispatchers are not only first responders, but they're the first responder. They're effectively on scene before EMS and police officers. So I mean, they're dealing with a lot of raw emotions. And they have to, first of all, hear that emotion. And um, they have to help that individual work through it. And in doing that, it's sometimes figuring out what, help do they need and in order to do that dispatchers oftentimes have to set their emotions aside because you're gonna if you are on the phone with someone who's actively being abused or uh, I I worked with a dispatcher once who took a call she uh, she received a call from an individual who was being pursued on a college campus and in the process of the call the attacker caught up with the individual and um, this 911 professional had to hear, had to hear the attack. And um, she, she immediately had a, had a reaction, first of all, because she's human and, and also because she had some kind of similar experiences in college, um, but she had been through some of the 911 classes and 
was able to was able to work through it. But uh, I, I started working with her pretty much immediately after the call, just to help process through it. And uh, and she's doing great now. So in the dispatch world, do you think they are? I don't know how to put this. Do you think they're better at dealing with the the trauma of the calls? Like, do they, do you think they're, because they seem to be more proactive with talking about it right away and debriefing on it right away. Um, or that at least that's my maybe assumption. Um, Cause I, I hear about it a lot. It seems like they're very proactive when it comes to that. Do you think that's true? Well, they are, they are proactive. I don't know that I can confidently say they're better at it than police officers or firefighters. Um, I mean, their, their training is very specific on how to, how to get through the call, how to get the right kind of information. So, you know, for a lot of individuals in, in 911, it, it, it becomes very easy to compartmentalize to be able to get through that call. But then when you hang up, the reality will often hit. Yeah, I cannot imagine. That's like a whole different level of, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think most people really think about it. And I know it's been a, it's been an issue kind of with mm-hmm. dispatch being part of the first responder, you know, whole Yeah atmosphere because they really are literally the first responder um in like 90 percent of those cases would you say that chelsea like um i i would say in almost 100 i go mm-hmm. yeah i'd go as far as to say 100 percent of the time um so also in my experience it's kind of hard not to talk about a call when the call is over um uh, i have i've had the pleasure of being in a dispatch center more times than i can count and seeing that that immediate response to the mental health piece that happens. Um, I think it's a little harder to do that when you're on the fire ground or you're on a, on a police call and you're Mm -hmm. in the thick of it. I think we get lost in all of that sometimes. So I would go so far as to say, it's pretty easy to be able to take a second when the phone's not ringing and you're not having to respond to those calls as a dispatcher and say, how am I feeling? How are you feeling? How did you think that call went? Those kinds of things. So that was, that's just my, what I've experienced personally. Uh, I, I definitely think you're right. The, the environment of a call center really does afford the opportunity to have a conversation about the call right afterward. And, and that's something that, that dispatch has been doing for quite a while. The issue is that for a very long time, those conversations weren't really had with individuals who had any kind of mental health training. So you had the opportunity to maybe vent or, or process through it or just share it with someone who, who also have, has a similar experience. But the benefits were, were fairly limited. And this is, I mean, pretty much across first responders, four first responders across the board up into the last you know, five or 10 years or so where we've really been training dispatchers on the, the mental health impact of these calls and specifically working with peer support teams. So we have peer support persons embedded in the call center 
who can uh, walk alongside someone who has just experienced that call and relate to them as a dispatcher, but also has some some mental health training to be able to give them suggestions on taking care of themselves to get through it, to process through the stress, and also, and maybe even most importantly, uh, look for, I guess you could say, warning signs that an individual might need more help. Right. I should have probably mentioned my husband's also on a peer support team. So he has a little bit awesome. of experience with that. So I'm in the unique situation where I've seen that kind of played out. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that is kind of a great segue into where we're going now. Um, so how can we, how can first responders um, be the best version of themselves at home? And wh- how do you su- propose departments begin to kind of implement the training that supports all of this? That's a really good question. And so you're going to hear the term wellness kicked around a lot these days. And I was, uh, I, I was asked by a local department in our area to uh, participate in their wellness day. And they asked me to come teach about suicide, about substance abuse, and about divorce. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do classes on those things if that's what you want. But just so you know, that's not wellness. That's disease management is what that is. Wellness is helping you prevent your team from getting to those points. Hmm. I had a, um, it was actually at a a, a sermon at at, at church once. The pastor said, people don't plan to blow up their lives. They just don't plan not to. Someone doesn't graduate from their academy or they don't finish their 911 training and say, you know what? And I think I'm going to work really hard at becoming a raging alcoholic. I shouldn't laugh, but you are totally right. Whoever yeah. thinks that is kind of uh, right. Yeah, that's yeah. the most bizarre they're, mindset. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not saying, I hope that at some point I get to, I, I get there, I get to the point where I'm so frustrated and angry, I blow up and Mm-hmm. Drop all kinds of f bombs on my supervisor. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. things happen, and those things happen because an individual doesn't necess- doesn't really do a good job of taking care of themselves to prevent that from happening. When I teach this, when I teach this class, I use the example of uh, from the movie The Blues Brothers, and this is a little less effective with the younger generation. <laughs> But in the movie, The Blues Brothers, there's just a pretty amazing car chase at the end. It's like 30 minutes long and the car's flying through the air and it's doing all these kinds of tricks and they're being chased by gangs and Nazis and all the, all this stuff. And it finally gets to its destination, right, which is the county court, uh, clerk's office. And as soon as they get out of the car, they shut the door and the car falls apart. And I've seen so many... 911 pros and so many police officers and firefighters get to a point in their career where they got that promotion that they want or they got to retirement and then everything falls apart. And that's why I love my job is I want to help people get there and not fall apart. I want to help people prevent them, prevent their lives from blowing up. That's where, that's where the real work happens. Yeah, I love that. So, I mean, how do we, 
how do we implement this training? Like, how do we get more departments and more, you know, dispatch centers and, and even hospitals to get this training implemented? Well, that's starting to turn around. Uh, We're starting to see a lot more funding. There are a lot of grants out there that different agencies have been able to access. And, uh, uh, you know, for, for, different reasons. Unfortunately, a lot of this has come because of the increasing suicide rates for first responders. You know, I mean, that we, we first started talking about it with returning vets. Then we kind of get the trickle down effect where, you know, we see, we study the suicide rates for returning vets, trickles down to police officers, to firefighters and to, to dispatchers. Unfortunately, there's not a ton of research out there for dispatchers. Um, so, you know, we're hoping that that can start to change, but we are seeing comm centers start to get some of these programs, start to get some of this funding as well. So, I mean, I, really you have to have the support from command and then you have to have the support from the departmental leadership, whether it's a city, then you need to get the, the support from the, from the mayor. And, you start with that, then you start building the team from scratch. You give them good training and you help build the reputation of the peer support team. And, you know, when I help build teams, I like to, we have to take a marketing approach to it. And you have to essentially sell the program to the department members so that they can believe in it so they can have trust in it and they can, because you, you, we're asking them to be vulnerable. And if you're going to do that, the people who are going to be on the receiving end of that have to have integrity and the right kind of training. Yep. I like what you said about we have to use our marketing skills because it's true. You have to sell it and people mm-hmm. have to want to believe that it's going to be effective and useful and mm-hmm. It's twisted, but accurate, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we all know that first responders tend to be a little bit more cynical, right? Yeah. yeah. Struggle. I mean, this is stereotypical, I understand, but they often struggle with uh, trusting individuals too. Mm-hmm. So you really have to take the time to build that trust relationship with the team, with the peer support team, and with the um, department members. That's critical. So tell me, let's go back to dispatch a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. specifically, I mean, this can be general too. How can families of 911 dispatchers best support them at home? Um, just you know, their, their schedules are completely, well, I'm not going to say completely different because they're not, are they what? Day shifts, night shifts, Chelsea. Are they- depends on depends on the department. So uh, okay. where my husband works, it's captains are seventy two hour shifts, just like all the rest of the fire captains, and then the comm ops are twelve hour shifts. Yeah, um, our dispatch is twelve hours. Yeah, I think it's three twelves. Yeah. So so they they come home after twelve hour shifts. What you know? What can what do their families do? how do their families support them? Cause it's, you know, it's different for them. They, they, they have to come home every, every day that, you know, the, the actual dispatchers, how do we, how do we help them? How do we support them? 
Well, that's a really good question. And uh, there isn't there isn't one answer I can give you on that. There, It has to start with, and I know it sounds cliche, but it has to start with effective communication between uh, the, the 911 um, call taker and his or her family. Because everyone's needs are different. Some people really need to process through their day and talk through the things that have happened the sooner the better. And then other people need a few moments, need some time to really decompress and not think about anything. Right. So, and, you know, again, when I, when I teach people who are early in their careers, I tell them you have to start communicating with your loved ones now. And you have to, first of all, know what you need to process through your day. And then what are they emotionally capable of, of hearing? Now, this is, really specifically in regards to what is shared about the job. Um, some people, you have a, have a spouse or partner who just can't really handle some of the gruesome details. So you know, if that's something that you need to, to process through, then they'll need a, you'll need to find another healthy way to do that. So in answer to your question, it first starts with communication. What are your needs? Um, you know, some of the general suggestions that I give people is uh, have have some kind of transition time. It's very hard to work in a very in a busy comm center, taking call after call after call after call, leaving your shift, and then a short drive home, and then you're immediately in the in the thrills of you know being a mom or dad or addressing somebody else's emotional needs. And that can be a really tough transition. And what works for a lot of couples or a lot of families is to just have some built-in time where you can kind of ease into that next role of your life, where you can work towards setting, setting aside the stress from the day and getting yourself into a place where you can be present with the people that love you the most. Stay with us. We'll be right back. So how do you live a good life, especially now? Is it about happiness, purpose, love, or friendship? And what about health or wealth? Can you live a good life even if you're struggling? The truth is often not what you think. I'm Jonathan Fields, best-selling author and host of the award-winning Good Life Project podcast. Every week, we bring you revealing conversations with some of the smartest, most accomplished, and yes, sometimes famous people that will awaken insight, arm you with practical tips, and inspire you to live your best life no matter what comes your way. Look for Good Life Project on your favorite podcast app today. Yeah, I love that. I think it's so true. Like you were saying, you know, you really have to know your partner and kind of know your family, know what works for you. And there isn't one singular answer because everyone is different and everybody processes different. We have to keep that in mind when we're trying to help our first responders, what helps us might not help them. So communication is always, always the key. We, we're going to bang that into your guys' heads on these podcasts. You must communicate yep. with your partner. <laughs> Well, you I was working guess. with a couple, uh, and this was, I think our last session was a week or two ago, but the uh, wife was a dispatcher, husband, um, I, I can't remember what his job was, but it was a, it was a nine to five kind of job. Um, 
and but he didn't have hardly any interaction with people in his job it was very very solitary job so they were having really tough time when she came home from work so she was on the phone with people communicating and hearing emotions and stuff all day long and he was getting none of that so she gets home and she wants to dial it down he gets home and he wants to turn it up yeah, that, I'm shaking my head wicked. over here because what's that? Yeah, that, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true though. I mean, I, a lot of stuff, like I work from home um, and a lot of the things I do, I don't talk to tons of humans all day and I only get that interaction from my kids and it's not the same as adults. So it's like when my husband comes home at 8 a.m., and I have, you know, an hour, I want to talk, talk, talk. And he's exhausted. And he's like, I don't want like not, you know, and he's not trying to be rude. He's just, he needs to decompress. And it's one of those things where, you know, now, obviously we've been married for a long time. So we kind of know how, how it operates a little bit. So we go for that quick walk and take the 20 minute pause. And then he comes in and takes a nap and, and, you know, you have to find the time where it kind of works for you to give them the space that they need and then still also get your needs met too. So it's, it's a vicious, vicious balance. It's uh, and it changes constantly. I mean, it, you know, it, one day he could come home and want to talk and you're like, why are you talking? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> so it just depends on the day. Yeah. I would say it's crazy. And it, it, again, back to the communication, right? If, if, uh, um, dispatcher has a really tough day and it's just not they just can't really talk about it that needs to be shared by them and that needs to be honored by the other person right so you can't just go home and shut down completely and not share anything because then your your partner is thinking well he or she's closing me off there's something wrong and i gotta help and if you got people in your life that love and care about you they're going to try to help and they're going to try to help in a way that works for them, which may not necessarily work for you. So in a situation where you've had a tough day and you just need to, to kind of decompress for a while, you just got to be able to share that and say, listen, hon, I know, I know you need some time, right. But I, I I need a few minutes. I need an hour or so to, to get myself into a good place. Everything's okay. It was a really tough day and I, I need a few moments to decompress and then, then I'll, I'll be able to, to be with you. Well, and I think that really applies to that, to really busy call centers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they may be talking on the radio or taking phone calls literally all day long for that whole 12 hours. And they don't want to come home and have to talk anymore after that. Like, you know, we're human beings. We can't, that kind of stuff. We can't, what am I trying to say that we can't sustain that for very long. So, I mean, I've, I've been in a call center where it's like that and it's, it's great. I can't handle it emotionally just being in there. I'm just like, Holy moly, what is happening right now? Mm -hmm. So from their perspective, like I've been talking all day, I've been helping other people with their emotions all day. I need a break, you know? <laughs> well, I experienced that as a, as a therapist. Yeah. And I'm working with people and I'm, I'm generally not hearing the, 
you know, the great things in their life. I mean, I, I do, but, you know, people often come to see a psychologist when things are not going well. So I hear a lot of those stories. And as a matter of fact, just yesterday, I got home and my wife needs this and that, and the kids need this and that. And I'm like, I've got nothing right now. I've had, I've had nine sessions and unfortunately I did not make good decisions and I scheduled them back to back. And I, I need to watch something mind numbing on TV and I need an hour to just reset. And she honored that the kids, I guess, kind of did, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as best as they could. Yeah. 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 That's funny. I have um, a few um, psychologist friends that say the same thing. Like they, and I think especially right now, because there are a lot of people using their mental health, um, mm-hmm. which is great, but it's also very overwhelming. I think for those on the, on the other side of the couch or on the, you know, behind the chair. And she's, you know, my, my girlfriend says the same thing all the time. She'll come home after you know, seven sessions of just hearing people's emotional trauma and having to process it and deal with it with them. And she checks out and comes home and watches this strange octopus show on Netflix. Okay. Yep. <laughs> she just needs something mindless that, you know, doesn't make you think and doesn't make you feel. And, mm-hmm. and she said, it's one of those things where now she's like, looks forward to the octopus show when she comes home, because it's, it's the one thing that kind of gets her to self-regulate and check back in. So I think, I mean, that's important for all of us to have the octopus show, right? You need something to kind of self-regulate you and get you back into, into calm mode so that you can carry on with your day. Man, nine patients in one day. Oi, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm working on setting those boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you so, are. You know, what I, what I talk about with my patients and when I teach classes is as far as self-care, there's, there's two things that are really important that you need to think about. One is rest and the other is recharge. So when you think about rest, an object at rest has no forces acting upon it. By definition, resting is doing nothing. And then recharge is an active process. So battery being recharged has something pouring into it. Now we need both of those. The issue is that we don't usually, or we often don't make the the right call. Like when we need to rest, we'll do something that recharges us. When we need to recharge, we rest, right? So if you really need to recharge and you go home and you rest, then you feel like you wasted the night. If you really need to rest and then you go home and you go for a run, you might end up hating something that you typically really enjoy doing, you know? So I encourage people to, to go through and, and write a list or what recharges you, what, uh, what is restful, and then just be real mindful of what you need in that moment and, and, and honor your needs. I think that's brilliant. That is actually brilliant. I'm going to, do that in my little journal today because that's very important i don't think i've ever thought of that for myself personally so that's happening today thank you for that you're very welcome all right i think we are ready are you y'all good chelsea yep ready for hot seat yeah so hot seat the short list of random questions that you're going to answer randomly so 
Oh, gosh. Um, okay. Just for us to get to know you a little bit better, our listeners to get you a little bit, know you a little bit better. It's no pressure. Like if you don't have an answer, don't answer. So, all right. All right, here we go. What's one question you wish we had asked you and how would you have answered it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Callie. I'm Barb. And And we we are are the Clarity Clarity Sisters. Sisters. Come join us in our safe space to take a little break, get some perspective. We're going to make life more fun. Come join us as we chat through navigating prickly relationships, learning to trust your intuition, and why self-care is not selfish. So grab yourself a little cup of clarity and a few giggles as we hang out, chit-chat, and laugh on the Clarity Cafe podcast. I wish you would have asked me... uh, what are the things that I do to invest in myself? And I would have said, I like to exercise and I like to read fantasy books. Oh, then you're going to love this next question. Favorite book you've ever read? Ding, ding. All right. Well, the favorite, my favorite book is definitely, uh, Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm a, kind of a nerd in that way. My husband's favorite books. So, yep. Yep, those are those are good books. I like them too. Um, what's the best self-help book you've read? And are you reading anything currently? Uh, let's see. Best self-help book that I've read. Um. I, uh, I have, I've read, uh, I've read a lot of marriage books, which I found have, have been helpful. Like the five love languages. Um, I know it's kind of more of a spiritual type thing, but it definitely has uh, application points for, for all couples, regardless of, of, of variables. And, and that helps me with, uh, with leading people as well. Um, just knowing that, I mean, cause we have, uh, in my clinic, we have about 10 therapists on staff and every person has a different personality and I have to be able to adjust my leadership to meet the needs of my team. That's absolutely critical. And, you know, that book has helped with that. Um, currently I am, uh, reading. So I just finished can't hurt me by David Goggins. And I just started, so I'm reading that one in, in a fantasy book. Uh, I'm reading Extreme Leadership by Jocko uh, Milich. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Yes. So that's actually on my reading list, Extreme Leadership. Um, have you read The Five Love Languages for Leaders? Uh, I think I have. It was a while back, but yes. Yeah. I've read a couple versions of the five love languages. I think they have like a, even five love languages for dogs. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They have, and they have one for children. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, yeah. I, I highly recommend that anyone who's in a relationship with anyone, friendship, anything, read that book mm-hmm. because it's, yep. even yep. though We've it does it. have spiritual references, it, it's not, it's not a book that's overly religious. I don't think. No, it's not. it's not. Yeah. So highly recommend that. 
Um, okay. This is a really important question to Audra. <laughs> she will judge okay. you. She okay. will. Okay, all right. <laughs> How do you like your eggs? <laughs> oh, so that's an easy one. Uh, over easy. Wait, are we like mid runny or like runny runny? Runny. I nope. Dr. Only J fails. Way. Only way. <laughs> I literally ate an over easy egg on a English muffin today. <laughs> Butter on the English muffin, and then you put the runny egg on top and you eat it. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> I actually, it, it's really sad. I haven't been able to eat a whole lot of eggs lately. I had. Uh, I had COVID about a year ago and I still haven't got my sense of smell back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I actually have, I think it's called uh, prosimus. I can't remember how you pronounce it, but some of the things that used to smell really nice smell foul and eggs and onions, they just don't smell good to oh. me anymore. So I have a hard That's time. That's so funny. My sister yeah. is the same way. My sister has the exact same. She can't stand the smell of onions right now. I mean, yeah. It's been like a, over a year. Yeah. So weird. Very strange. I love the yep. smell of onions. I think I love the smell of onions even more after having COVID. That's so weird. Like <laughs> oh, that is you. weird. Pickled onions. Oh, I love pickled onions. Yes. Of I, course. I'll eat pickled onions all day. <laughs> yes. Um, which leads us to our next question. Do you like pickles? <laughs> Well, I, I do like pickles. I prefer dill and I like them hot too. I think you're the first person on the show that has said that you like dill. Uh -huh. Get told gherkins a lot. Dill, I, I love dill pickles. I have a whole big container of them in yeah. my and I eat one every day. That's the yeah. only thing my kids eat. Yeah, bread and butter pickles are not welcome in my refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, I think that's all of it. I think that's all the questions we have today. Wait, okay. no, you got one more. Did you, uh, you didn't ask the insult question. Oh, the insult question. Yes. yes. Um, or did I, wait, what is that insult question? Oh, what's an insult you've received that you're proud of? Um, an insult that I've received that I'm proud of. Um, Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So my daughter is a competitive swimmer and uh, so she's, she's young. She is uh, 13 years old and uh, I was sitting in the stands for one of her swim meets and this was for her, her middle school. And there were parents that were talking, oh my gosh, there's that girl that I told you. She's like a, she's like, you know, uh, lightning fast and people are talking about her. I'm just like real proudly sitting there just taking it in. Like, yeah, that's, that's my girl right there. And, uh, so I was telling a couple other people about that. And then, uh, you know, one person said uh, at one point, you're like really into your daughter. I'm like, well, yeah, she's pretty cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You should be into your daughter. What the heck? Yeah. Is the weirdest thing yeah people i've been to my other kids too but that's just the example that came up yeah no that's that makes total sense that is the most bizarre insult yeah it was really weird i i don't know what his deal was but i mean we're not super close so i don't really care what his deal was <laughs> there you go 
there you go. Setting those boundaries, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Jenka, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It was a real honor to chat with you. Um, for our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Jenka's work with the 911 Training Institute, you can follow them on Instagram at 911 Training Institute or find their website at 911training.net. And if you enjoyed enjoyed the show today and you'd like more people to join us, consider leaving a positive rating and review. And you can always share our stuff on social media. Dr. J, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'll come back anytime. Thanks so much for tuning in. Tune in weekly for the 25,000 foot view of loving a first responder. Audra and Chelsea, over and out.